So we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 9, looking at verses 35 through 38. And so when you've arrived there, which hopefully you have, will you stand as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. And Matthew records this, and he says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Heavenly Father, as we examine this passage of scripture, I pray that you would give us a heart for disciple making, that when we look and see those around us and those in need of you, that our heart would break, that we would be filled with compassion, and that we would fight to not only be a faithful disciple, but to be a faithful disciple disciple maker. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are continuing on in our series uh, entitled Disciple Making Disciples. So this is our third week uh, in this series. And, and, you know, up until this point, we've primarily focused on what it looks like to be a disciple. Uh, so in the first week, we talked a little bit about the marks of a disciple, of, uh, of these defining marks of one who is going to run after Jesus. And then what we talked about last week, if you remember, we talked a little bit about the irreducible complexity of a disciple, meaning that there are these three key components that have to be present in the life of a disciple to be a healthy functioning disciple. And we talked about how all three are important. You can't take one component away and still have a functioning, healthy disciple. You need all three of those components. And one of the things that I hope we've established up until this point is that when you accept the invitation into a relationship with Jesus Christ by grace through faith, when you accept this invitation into a relationship with Jesus, you are simultaneously entering into the process of discipleship. There is no category of being saved by grace through faith and not being a disciple. Because what we talked about even in the very first sermon is that when we accept the invitation, we are accepting an invitation into a relationship with Jesus. And we are, when we are walking in relationship with Jesus, we are walking as a disciple being made to look more and more like Jesus. Now one of the beautiful things about discipleship is this. And I don't want, don't want you to miss this. Jesus calls people from all walks of life, with different backgrounds, with different stories, with different struggles, with different hurts and experiences. He calls people from all different situations to enter into this relationship of discipleship. And more often than not, and this is important, Jesus isn't calling what we would consider to be the worldly elite. He's calling the ordinary, everyday people to come and to follow after him. And we've seen this with the other disciples, right? At the beginning of Matthew, uh, Matthew recounts for us when Jesus called uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And, and we learn that he called them from Galilee. And that's a significant place because Galilee would not have been the place where you would have found the cream of the crop religious people of the day. 
That's not where the scribes were. It's not where the Pharisees were. It's not where the high priest was. They wouldn't have been in Galilee. In fact, Galilee was so looked down on by the religious elite that they were considered less than because most of them were would be somewhat of what they would have called these mixed breeds of half Jewish, half not. And so they were considered less than less. They were despised. They were rejected. And yet it's from this place that Jesus calls his first disciples from Galilee, those that would have been looked down on by the religious elite. Earlier in Matthew chapter 9, we, re, we see where Jesus actually calls Matthew, who was a tax collector. And like it is today, tax collectors weren't looked very highly on back then. Nobody wants somebody taking their money. Amen. You can say amen to that. I thought it was funny. Uh, no, no one wants that, right? And so here, Jesus has called a fisherman, or a bunch of fishermen. He's called a tax collectors. And it's through these men that he is going to build his church. Jesus doesn't necessarily call the, the elite of the world into this process of discipleship. Jesus calls all sorts of people. But incorporated into that call to discipleship is a call to make disciples. See, they are one and the same. We saw this very thing at the end of our text last week when, when we explored a little deeper Jesus calling Peter. And at the very end of that call, he says to him, I will make you a fisher of men. And so as Jesus calls Peter into discipleship, he's also calling him into a new purpose. Not only are you going to follow after me, not only are you going to be my disciple, but I want you to know that to be my disciple means that you are going to be a disciple maker. Hence the title of this series, Disciple Making Disciples. Now, here's why I'm saying all of this before we kind of get into this text, because often we are okay with the idea of being a disciple of Jesus when it's just us and Jesus. We're, we're okay with that. We, we even understand some, somewhat of the, the hardship that it entails and what it's going to require of us and the sacrifice that's necessary. And we're okay with following after Jesus and being made more like him when it's just us and Jesus. But where we often miss the mark is by assuming that the call to actually make disciples is reserved for the spiritual elite. You tracking with me? That the, the, the job of making disciples is the job of those who are called into vocational ministry or those who are called to be missionaries or those are, who are called to be evangelists. And so we like the idea of just us and Jesus. I'm going to be his disciple. I'm going to kind of keep my faith in the corner between me and him and no one needs to know. But where we miss the mark is when we forget that this call to actually go out and make disciples is not a call extended to the religious elite. It's the call that's extended to everyone who accepts the invitation to walk in relationship with Jesus. You tracking with me? So then the question becomes, how do we move from being a disciple to actually being a disciple maker? How do we make that move from just focusing on just being a disciple to being a disciple maker? And so in the text that we just read in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, Jesus reveals to us through his actions four things that we have to do. Now, these are actions, four things we have to do in order to move from being a disciple to a disciple maker. Now, I, full disclosure, right, this is my disclaimer here. These four points are not original to me. I like to give credit where credit is due. I told you there are three books that I have been kind of studying through as we've entered into this conversation about disciple making disciples and one of those books is written by a man named Dehati Lewis he's a pastor in Atlanta he wrote a book called Among Wolves uh, Disciple Making uh, in the City 
And so he gave these four points. And so the four points of these sermon, uh, this sermon I'm taking from him, but he didn't really expand, expand on them any. So I'm going to take these points and hopefully kind of uh, teach through them a little bit more than he did. Because I think they're really strong points of four actions that Jesus models to us that are actions that we have to undertake if we're going to move from being a disciple to being a disciple maker. So here is the first thing that we have to do. We have to see with clarity. We have to see with clarity. You know, one, one thing to note about me, uh, as you get to know me, some of you might know this really well, but one thing uh, that I'll share a little bit about myself, uh, I'm not a big fan of doctors. I'm sorry, Chris. I'm, 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 I'm not a big fan of doctors. Shout out to Shawnee Health Clinic over here. Uh, I, I'm not even entirely sure why I'm not a big fan of doctors. I mean, it could be some arrogance and pride in me that I don't like people knowing things that I don't know. Uh, that could be it. Uh, it could be some deep-rooted trauma that I'm unaware of that happened in my past. I'll have to talk to my parents about that and with, with doctors. Uh, there was this time where I broke my arm and they, had to set, they tried to set it like five times, but I was so tempted it kept like popping back out of place and they finally put me to sleep. And I was like, well, you could have led with that. Um, maybe it's that. Uh, maybe it's that I just don't like giving people my money. I, that could be it as well, but, but I'm not a, a, a big fan of doctors, but I do know one thing about doctors, so here I'm going to give you your shout out. They are necessary. Doctors are necessary because doctors are able to do something that most of us who are not doctors cannot do. So let me explain it to you. Uh, have you ever had something going wrong with you and you decided that you were going to diagnose yourself on something called WebMD? Anybody ever done that? I see a couple of hands, a couple of honest people, so I've done that. And if you're anything like me, once you've done that, you're probably more confused and probably a little afraid. Because at this point, I don't know if I had an allergic reaction or if I have leprosy. Right? Like, I don't know if I have a migraine or I just developed a brain tumor. I don't know. There was one diagnosis that I received and then I had to realize, oh, that can't be me. I don't have those parts. But, but I genuinely thought that I, I had this, this disease, right? And so it's a world of mess when we try to self-diagnose ourselves. But here's the reason why it doesn't go well for us. Because we can't see with clarity what's actually going on in our bodies. And more importantly, we don't see the solutions that would be needed to fix the problems. And that is why a doctor is necessary, because through training and practice and knowledge, they can look at the human body knowing what to look for and see with clarity what is going on. But even more important, a doctor not only sees with clarity what is broken, a, doc a doctor also sees with clarity the solution. They know how to fix it. Lo and behold, you should all go to Shawnee Health Clinic and visit Dr. Chris when something is going wrong. I got you. <laughs> Doctors are able to see with clarity what's wrong and see the solution. And what we see with Jesus in this text and his example is, is another example, a better example of seeing with clarity. Because not only does Jesus identify the problem, but he also identifies the solution. Notice what he says there in verse 36 and 37. It says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Now pay attention to this. It says, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. You see what Jesus identifies in these statements as he is teaching the disciples of their need to be disciple makers is the problem that needs to be addressed. Jesus sees with clarity. And first, Jesus identifies that the people are distressed and dejected. In other words, Jesus looks at these people and he sees a people who are tired, who are worn out, who are broken down and who have been cast aside. They were weary and they were hopeless. But Jesus goes even further and elaborates on why this is the way it is when he mentions this idea of sheep, when he says that they are like sheep without a shepherd. See, we know through scripture how problematic it can be when sheep don't have shepherds. God addressed this very thing in Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6, where Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, these aren't shepherds of actual sheep. These are the shepherds that are supposed to be shepherding the people. These are the spiritual leaders in Israel. And he says, prophesy to them and say, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherd. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You you have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bandaged the injured. You have not brought back the strays or sought out the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. They have scattered for a lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and every hill. My flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and there was no one searching or seeking for them. See, Jesus goes even deeper into the problem. He says he sees with such clarity that he can look beyond the surface. He sees a people who is dejected, who is tired, who is weary, who has been cast aside by the rest of society. And he sees that as a problem, but he goes even deeper into what the problem is. The problem problem is not that situation. The problem is what has led them to that situation. What has led them there is that these sheep don't have a shepherd. Yes, they are dejected. Yes, they are distressed. But more significantly, they have no shepherd. And what they need is a good shepherd. And what they need is Jesus. And so what Jesus understands, though, is not only the need of the people, a need for a good shepherd, but he understands what it's going to take to fulfill that need, to meet that need. And notice what he prays for in Verse 37, or what he teaches in verse 37, he says, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. And so basically, Jesus sees with such clarity these people that he looks at, he says, I see you as distressed, I see you as dejected, I see you as tired and weary and hopeless, and I see that you have no shepherd. You have no good shepherd, and I am the good shepherd, but Jesus is wise in understanding how it is people are going to get to the good shepherd. And so he prays, not that they would find the shepherd, he prays that people would go out and bring them to the shepherd. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He prays that people would go out among the people and draw near to them and bring them to himself. And so if we are going to be a people who move from being disciples to disciple making, we have to see with clarity the desperate need of the people around us. And there is a lot of need in the people around us, is there not? But we have to make sure we are seeing with clarity what's the root of that problem. Because one of the dangerous things that we can do is 
think we're seeing with clarity and see real surface needs and only address those surface needs and never get to the heart of the matter that people need a good shepherd. And Jesus is calling people to step out and lead people to the good shepherd. But I want to be clear about this. It's not enough to only see with clarity. Because when we see with clarity, it should lead us to our next action. And so the next thing, the next action that Jesus models is not only does he see with clarity, but he feels with compassion. He feels with compassion. Look beginning uh, look again at the beginning of verse 36 there. It says that when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion. That word compassion is interesting because it could be translated, and it is often in the Greek language, the original language, it's translated as a groaning in the bowels. As a groaning in the bowels. It, it's, it's this feeling that wells up in the deepest part of us. So let me try to give you an example to help you, uh, help you understand. Have you ever been so broken by something or seen something that just hurts you so bad that it just made your stomach churn? That's what Jesus feels when he looks at these people who are helpless. There is just such an urgency and, and this feeling of great empathy and compassion within him that it makes his bowels just churn. It, may, it, it makes him move to act. And so Jesus feels with compassion. This is what happens when Jesus sees people so desperately in need of him. And so what I want to communicate is that if we are going to, to be a disciple of Jesus and be like him as we seek to make disciples, we have to have a heart that breaks and we have to have bowels that churn over the things that break Jesus' heart. Jesus is filled with compassion as he sees those in desperate need. And again, as Christians, we are actually commanded to have this same heart of compassion. You can look at Paul's writing in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 13, where he says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, that's you who are in the faith, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, he says, put on compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving, any, uh, forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Colossians 3 is important because it grounds this heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness in what Christ has done for us. See, not only... Do we have to dwell deeply on what God has done for us? But, but we have to allow that to kind of change our hearts and our minds and our thinking towards the lost. And, and, and the significance of Paul grounding these, these things that we have to put on and what Christ has done for us is that, is that Paul understands that when we genuinely dwell on the gospel, when we understand what it is that Christ has done for us, it will well up these things in us. Because oftentimes the reason compassion doesn't exist and kindness doesn't exist and, and bearing with one another doesn't and humility and forgiveness, why they don't exist is because we are arrogant. We're arrogant. And we look down on people. But what the gospel does is it kind of pushes us down a little bit, doesn't it? 
cuts us down a few notches. It reminds us that we're not as great as we might think we are because what the gospel tells us is that we cause the problem and we cause the sin and by nature we are separated from God and God ought to rightly destroy us. People don't like to talk about that but that's what's in the Bible and yet in the midst of all that when we could not get to God, God came and dwelt among us. And God came down to rescue and redeem us. And so the gospel is this message that ought to humble us. And as it humbles us by God's grace, we begin to see people through the same eyes and with the same heart that Jesus sees people with. But I want to go a little bit further. I think one of the reasons as Christians, and so bear with me here as I try to unpack this, I think one of the, the reasons that we struggle to show compassion and kindness and gentleness, and, and a disclaimer just for you, showing kindness, compassion, compassion, gentleness, and love doesn't mean you have to agree with everything everyone does. Right? Like We live in, in a culture right now that to disagree is to automatically hate, and I hate that. You can, you can not agree with someone and still be compassionate and gentle and kind. The greatest evidence for that is parents. I disagree with my kids a lot in the decisions that they make, amen? A lot. But I can still love them and show kindness and goodness and gentleness and forgive them. It doesn't mean I hate them. And we've lost that. Right? Civil disagreement is gone for some reason. But we as Christians, right, we, we have to make sure that, that, that we... We are having this heart, and part of the way that we have this heart, and this is so important, is by making sure that we don't see people as the enemy. People are not the enemy. Too often we are fighting people, and I, I think I understand where this came from in the church, so I don't think it's right. I, I think I understand it because for the longest time our, our, our language started to shift, right? And we would read passages like Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we would read passages like friendship with the world is enmity with God and strife with God. And so what we, what we identified and what we, the way that we interpreted that, we, we interpreted it to mean that if we are kind to the world, if we are compassionate to the world, if we see the world and the people in it as worth loving, we're friends with the world. We're being conformed to the world. And we miss the fact that Jesus wasn't conformed to the pattern of this world, and yet he still ate with tax collectors and sinners and dined with prostitutes and thieves, and he loved what the world considered to be the unlovable. We missed the mark here. And so what we engaged in as the church was something called the culture war, where we made the people of this world our enemy and decided to fight them. And can I tell you that great danger comes when you don't understand who you're fighting and when you miss the mission. I was reading an article recently about where government leaders actually had to apologize because a drone strike went and they were thinking that they were killing um, people who were in Al-Qaeda, I think, ISIS, whoever they are. Um, and what they found out after they bombed this place was that they actually killed hostages. They killed American hostages, and so uh, President Barack Obama got on and took responsibility and apologized and said we had misinformation, and he said something that was very interesting. He said if we would have known that they were there, we would have done things differently. And see, we've got to make sure that we understand the mission because we often think that our mission is to be this battle offensive where we are attacking and cutting down people, and we've missed the fact that our mission is actually a rescue mission. 
It's not to fight the people that are in front of us. It's to love and rescue them from the grip of Satan and hell. And we have missed that mark and we have fought people and we have forgotten that we have a real enemy and our enemy is not flesh and blood. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Our fight is not against people and we've got to stop fighting people and fight the real enemy because I think Satan is having a field day as he watches Christians fight the wrong people. But I believe that the gates of hell tremble when Christians understand who their enemy actually is. And it's not the lost person on the street. Listen, the lost person on the street is not the antithesis of the gospel. They're the reason for the gospel. And we've got to make sure we're not fighting people, but we are fighting our real enemy. Our real enemy. And as we understand who our enemy actually is, I believe that what it will do is shift our hearts so that we're not angry with people and we're not hating people and we're not trying to to defeat people, but we are hating and angry with and wanting to crush our real enemy. And let me tell you, it is okay to hate Satan. I heard a pastor preach recently and he talked about how we should interpret the imprecatory psalms. You know, those are those psalms where it's like crush his teeth. Like, kill him. You know, and a lot of times they're praying that about people, and a lot of Christians are like, I don't know what to do with that anymore. Well, you got to remember what we say about much of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament gave us physical pictures of spiritual realities. And so if we take that into the imprecatory Psalms, what, what David is giving us a picture of is a physical picture of a spiritual reality that we do have a real enemy, and we should pray for his defeat. I pray that God crushes the jaw of Satan, breaks his teeth like David prayed over his enemies. That's our enemy. Let me tell you something, and this is going to be tough for some of you. Your enemy is not Republicans. Your enemy is not Democrats. Your enemy is not Donald Trump, though he tries. (laughs) Your enemy is not people who disagree with you on foreign policy or immigration. It is not people who have a different faith than you. It is not people who raise their children different than you. It is not your neighbor who is slinging dope on the corner. It is not the prostitute. It is not the pimp. They are not your enemies. That's your mission. That's who you are called to rescue. And rescuing works best when there's a heart of love because it pushes us to go to extreme measures. Again, lost people are not the antithesis of the gospel. They are the reason for the gospel. And as we begin to change our understanding, we will see with clarity, we will feel with compassion, but here's the third action that Jesus models for us. We pray with confidence. We pray with confidence. Look at what Jesus says in verse 38. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Dahadi Lewis, in the book that I got these four points from, uh, he, he writes this. He says that prayer is the first thing Jesus calls his disciples to do. That's interesting to think about. That prayer is the first thing that Jesus actually calls his disciples to to do the whole time up until now. They have been watching Jesus do ministry. But now their first call to action is prayer. And he goes on, he says, prayer is not passivity. It is an activity that calls for purpose and determination. We are communicating with the God of the universe, ultimately saying that we are utterly and completely dependent on him. Church, hear me, our hope and our confidence is not found in how well we perform. Our hope and our confidence is found in the God who acts. And as we move, hear me, from being a disciple to being a disciple maker, we do so utterly dependent on God. 
He is the only one who can bring about what we are longing to see in the people that we are ministering to. And let me just pause here and, and remind you that that should be a comfort to you. Because I think a lot of times people could get discouraged when they're seeking to make disciples and they're sharing their faith and they're trying to walk with other saints and they're trying to shepherd them and they're trying to do what the Bible has called them to do. And it's just not, it's not bearing any fruit. Nothing is growing, right? These seeds just aren't, aren't bringing anything to harvest and we can get so discouraged. But what this truth reminds us of is that faithfulness in disciple making, faithfulness as a disciple does not hinge on the results of your work. Faithfulness hinges on your willingness to do the work. And God is pleased with that. There are some of you in this room, and I pray that it is not true, that will spend your entire life seeking to make disciples and you will reach the end of this race and you will look back and you can't put your finger on one person that you can say that you, you walked through this discipleship process and yet if you are faithful in this life, you can still stand before God and say and hear him say, well done, good and faithful service. Because God has never put the results in our hands. He has just called us to be faithful. And so we don't want to get discouraged when what's, what's, what we're longing to see produced isn't being produced as long as we can say we are being faithful to what God has called us to. Now, that's not an easy out because some of us are like, whew, praise God, that means I don't have to do the work. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. You have to be faithful to what God has called you to. And if God in his sovereignty does not seek to see fit to bring fruit in this season for you to see, it does not mean you have failed. It does not mean you have failed. Faithfulness does not guarantee the results we want, but they always bring about the results that God has decreed. Now, I want you to note something. When Jesus calls them to pray for workers to be sent out, the Greek word for sent out comes from another Greek word called, another Greek word called ekbalo, which means to force out. Right? So send out is kind of a gentle way. What, what Jesus is actually telling them is he's saying, you need to pray that God would force out workers into the field. That he would force them out. And to again quote Lewis, he says this. He is telling us to pray with desperation that the Lord would force us out of our comfort to serve the masses of people wanting to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus is not only telling them to pray for other people to step out. He is also telling them to pray that God would give them boldness to step out. And if not, that God would force them out of their comfort zones. And I know this because some of the first people that God sends out is not those that they were praying for. It was for them. They got forced out. They were sent out to go and make disciples and to make much of the name of Jesus. So this isn't, this isn't a, an easy out for us. Well, I don't really feel comfortable making disciples, so I'm going to pray that God sends other people out. Pray that God sends other people out, but pray that God will force you out as well. Pray that he will force you out. Now, I want to tell you something. I'm going to be up front with you because you know me. I like to be up front with you. I don't want to hide anything behind a curtain, right? This is a dangerous prayer to pray, that God would force us out. But it is a faithful prayer to pray. You may be one who feels like you have not quite entered this area of or this arena of disciple making. Well, I would encourage you to pray that God would force you out. But be cautious when you pray that because oftentimes he has to force us out because we don't want to go out. And so in order for him to force us out, sometimes he has to remove the things that are holding us back. And so... It's a hard prayer. It's a dangerous prayer, but it's a faithful prayer. And I would encourage you here today, as you go from this place, begin to pray this prayer in honesty and sincerity. If you genuinely want to make disciples and watch God force you out, 
for your good, but for his glory. But I want, I want you to know that when he forces you out, he forces you to a particular place. And this leads to the final action that Jesus models for us. Jesus, as, as he's walking through this situation, as he's speaking, he is also calling his disciples to respond with closeness. So we have see with clarity, feel with compassion, pray with confidence, and finally respond with closeness. Because look at where Jesus prays the workers would go in verse 38. And I'm going to give you a hint. It's not into the church building. He says, therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, look at this, into his harvest. If we are going to be disciple makers, we have to respond to what we see with clarity. We have to respond to what we feel with compassion. We have to respond to the, to the answer of prayer by, by going into the harvest, by stepping into the lives and the situations of those in need of the shepherd and to walk with him as we disciple them to follow Jesus. Up until this point, I've not given my definitions, but I'm going to give you my two simple definitions of what is a disciple and what is a disciple maker. They're very short, they're very sweet, but I think they capture everything that needs to be captured. A disciple is one who follows Jesus, who follows Jesus, who follows his teaching, who follows his calls, who follows his commands. A disciple is one who follows Jesus, and a disciple maker is one who helps other people follow Jesus. That's what we're asking you to do. That's what, not we're asking, that's what Jesus commands you to do in being a disciple maker. He says, you need to step out and help people follow Jesus. Because if you are here and you are following Jesus, the only reason that you are here and following Jesus is because at some point along the way, somebody helped you follow Jesus. You didn't figure this out on your own. That's not how it works. I've got scripture to back that up. How will they know unless someone is sent, right? So somebody at some point in time introduced you to something, gave you a book, they shared the gospel with you, they handed you a Bible, but somebody along the way decided that it was worthwhile to help you follow Jesus. And that's what being a disciple maker is. It's saying we're going to step into people's lives, we're going to respond with closeness, and we are going to help them follow Jesus. But I want to be clear, the only way we can effectively help others follow Jesus is when we dwell close to them. This past week I had the opportunity... Um, uh, the Kentucky Baptist Convention called me and asked me to uh, record um, a lecture for them for, their, for one of the classes that they offer to church planters. And they gave me the topic of urban church planting. So check this out. They gave me the topic of urban church planting. They said they wanted me to cover how do we do church planting in an urban context, which in my mind just means a context different than your, yours. That's why they asked me to do it. They, they wanted to know how we, how we meet needs, how we effectively gauge, and how we walk through the discipleship process with them. I was like, cool, that sounds great. And they said, you have 20 minutes. So I did the best that I could with 20 minutes, but one of the things I taught in that is I took this phrase, and it's a phrase that I've used frequently, and I just broke it down. I said, if we are going to be effective in making disciples in any context, in any situation, the approach that we have to have is incarnational gospel ministry. And so I broke each of those words down, and that first word, incarnational, is key. And I drew this principle from John 1:14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So Jesus came and dwelt among us. And my whole principle with that was when Jesus came to seek and save the lost, he didn't do it from a distance. 
He dwelt among the people he came to seek and save. He felt their hurts. He felt their pains. He saw them distressed and dejected. He felt real compassion. But Jesus dwelt among the people that they were ministering to, that he, that he was ministering to, that he was seeking to save. And, and so I went so far with the urban church planters and just told them, this is just a church planters. I'm not saying it to you. But I told them, I said, so listen, so we can't compartmentalize life and ministry. So if you as a church planter are not willing to plant your life among the people that you are ministering to, don't go plant a church. It won't work, and it's a waste of time, and it's a poor representation of the gospel. But if we feel a call to love people well and to see disciples made, then we will plant our lives among the people. Now, I'm not telling any of you that you have to move down here. A lot of you live down here. Praise God for that. If you want to move down here, we'd love to have you. But I'm not telling you to. But you have to find a unique way to plant yourself among the people that you are called to minister because that's the only way that disciple making really works is when we walk in a close relationship with people that we are trying to help them follow Jesus. It's the way it works. And for some of us, this might cost us something. For some of us, this might require sacrifice. I was telling Candace, you know, she was gracious to host uh, swim lessons at uh, YMCA for, I mean, she invited a lot of new breed kids and it was a discount price. And so I was like, yay, because our kids can't swim. And I don't, they're scared of water and I don't have patience for that. I love water. When I had Facebook in my hobbies, it said jumping off of things and landing in water. That's not my children. So we went. But one of the things that Aliyah and I had talked about is we were like, it would probably be good for us to join this YMCA. Let's call it what it is. Not because you're going to find me on a treadmill. I ain't going to do it. Um, but because this is a great opportunity for us to engage with people in our community and draw near to them. And so when we were there Saturday, we went to register. And I'm, I'm not even lying. I'm, I'm not joking. There was a conundrum in my brain when they told me how much it was going to cost me a month. Legit. And I was like, no. Like, because I'm not going to run on a treadmill. It's not worth it. Like, yeah, my kids can swim, but like we can fill the bathtub up. They're still little. It's fine. But in all seriousness, though, it's as if the Holy Spirit just kind of screamed in my ear, what are you doing? Like, you're not willing to cut things out of your life to sacrifice this $71 a month so your family can be in close proximity to and build relationships with and get to know people that you claim to love and you say you want to see them follow Jesus. Count the cost. And then the Lord was so kind to remind me even of, of just how worth it it was because in the two days that we have been there, I've been able to have four gospel conversations with people. And so it's like, this is worth it. And so, yeah, if we got to cut some, we'll cut Disney Plus out, right? But if it allows us, some people are like, nope. Mm -mm. I, saw, I, saw, I saw heads shaking. Like, all right, that might have been a bad example for some of you, okay? Okay, Disney Plus is great, right? But what are we willing to sacrifice to draw near and to dwell among the people that we are called to minister to? Because when Jesus came to seek and save the lost, he didn't do it from a distance. And the amazing thing is, though, so after I talked about the incarnation, I skipped the gospel for a minute, saved the best for last, and went to the ministry part, right? Because what we care about is holistic care of people. Because Jesus cared about holistic care. You can read Matthew 4, 23 and 24, where it talks about Jesus not only went throughout the city's teaching, but he was healing diseases, right? He was, he was doing signs and performing miracles. Jesus cared about the physical well-being of people. And so we care about ministry in a holistic sense. And the way that we will do effective holistic ministry is when we're dwelling among people to know what it is they need. 
And so then we minister to them, and we believe that as we are incarnational and pursuing ministry, that it will lead to gospel opportunities, right? Because we never just want to meet a physical need, because you can die with all your physical needs met and still go straight to hell. We want to introduce people to Jesus. We want them to know about this one who has loved them and sought them out. We want them to have a real relationship with Jesus, but it begins with responding with closeness. And I just want to remind you, the greatest example of that is Jesus. Because though he was in the form of God, Philippians 2 tells us, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And taking on the form of a servant, a human, he wrapped himself in this this broken flesh, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. I say it so much because I think it's such a powerful picture that when we couldn't get to God, Jesus came to us. And he dwelt among us and he loved us and he faithfully fulfilled the law. And then he did the most amazing thing. He died in our place on the cross to save us from our sins and to restore our relationship with God. We believe that he died, was buried and raised from the dead. And that God invites anyone to come into relationship with him through faith and repentance. By banking all that we have on what Christ has done for us and turning from our sin and running after him. And we want to see people do that. We want to see people do that. And Jesus is our example. Because a disciple wants to be like the one they follow, correct? And Jesus dwelt among people in order to love them and make much of the Father. And so we too must be willing to respond with closeness. So let me wrap this thing up in one, one or two sentences. You know me. If we are going to move from just being a disciple to being a disciple maker. And I would argue that being a disciple maker is the faithful thing to do. If we are going to do that, we have to see with clarity what's going on around us and the real need of real people that are hurting and dying and going to hell and we have hope and we don't do anything with it. We have to see with clarity and, 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 and not only do we see with clarity, but we have to feel with compassion because we have to actually care about the plight of these image bearers of God. The greatest need being their need for a savior. But then we pray with confidence that God would bring about opportunities for us, that he would force us out and that he would bring other people into the harvest alongside of us. And then we respond with closeness. We go And we seek to reap the harvest because I love what Jesus said. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He doesn't just say there is a harvest. He said it's plentiful. You've heard me say it. I believe that right now there are people who are ready to respond in faith and repentance. I believe it with the depths of who I am because Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And it's a really bad look when the few workers stop working. Amen. And so we want to be people among the harvest, trying to reap the harvest for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the kingdom because we believe Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. And he is worth following.